Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. I'm here with tapestry weaver Rebecca Mezoff, whose new book, The Art of Tapestry Weaving, is just out. Welcome. Thank you, Anne. So your new book is kind of all about the the days of putting a um a woven tapestry together. So it's all of these different insider tips and tricks. It is. It's um it's a book that I actually my teacher had been talking about producing when he was alive and he died young unexpectedly. And so I sort of feel like, well, maybe finally someone has written the <laughs> The New Tapestry Techniques book. So it's a basic um, introduction to tapestry techniques intended for beginners or for longer term practitioners who need a reference on their shelf. So it's sort of an update to some really great books that are out there, but they're about 20 years old and they just needed some modern touches, I think. And tapestry weaving, I mean, it's weaving, it's got the over, under, over, under. And in some ways, though, it's a little bit different from, you know, the the sort of the shaft weaving, you know, four harness looms and things like that. So how how do you think about your weaving? So that is such a great question. Um, I did start as a weaver with the over under fabric kind of stuff with drafts and all that fascinating interlacement of um, fibers to make patterns and lace and everything. But I found that I was um, really wanting to make images. I started playing with double weave and then I was making pictures with double weave and someone told me about tapestry. So I um, got into tapestry because it allows you to make images. So it's a weft faced weave, um, which means that the warps are set a little wider apart and the, the weft, which just goes over and under, um, can slide all the way down and cover the warp. So really all you're seeing is the weft and those are usually colored threads. And we use those to make pictures basically with yarn. Um, you know, it could be any image at all, but some things are a little more weaverly than others. So I guess I think about my practice as a tapestry weaver in terms of an art based medium. It's the, the goal is to create some kind of an image or feeling in something that I'm most likely going to hang on the wall, although you could use tapestry for all kinds of things. You could put it on clothing or use it to make rugs or pillows or whatever. Mostly what I do is wall-based art work. And tapestry is in so many different cultures and traditions around the world. We're here in the in the Mountain West and um, I believe you you learned a lot about tapestry weaving in New Mexico. Is that right? Yeah, I grew up in New Mexico and I studied with um, people in northern New Mexico for quite a few years. And um, so there's a whole mix of traditions. I think one of the fascinating things about weaving, of course, is it's all over the world. But tapestry also has traditions in so many parts of the world um, used for all different kinds of things. And New Mexico is a place that has not only contemporary tapestry weavers, but people who weave in the Rio Grande tradition, which is a sort of colonial Hispanic tradition of weaving um, lots of rugs, wall hangings, home textiles 
And then the Navajo is big influence in New Mexico. And those are also tapestries woven in the traditional Navajo way. Then there's also Pueblo weavers in New Mexico, and they tend to weave, I think, less tapestry and more other forms of functional fabrics. But all of those influences sort of mixed together. I think I have kind of a mishmash of tapestry styles. I mean, it's firmly grounded in this sort of European image-based tapestry that we think of as tapestry. But there's some things that come directly from Rio Grande and Navajo weaving that sneak in and are probably even present in my book. And I may not even recognize that's where they came from exactly. That's kind of how, you know, textiles are so influenced here and there. You pick up a little something and 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 I'm sorry, I have to say weave it in, but um, <laughs> weaving, in, you know, inspires so many puns. It's hard not to. It's sort of fundamental. <laughs> but, you know, when I think about tapestry weaving, you know, I've seen, you know, on the cover of your book, there's sort of a simple upright frame loom. And there are sorts of things like that. I happen to have seen a picture of you at your loom, and it's not like that at all. No. What do you weave on? So I um, I started as, as a weaver who was, um, I have a, a long background in teaching, but I started in tapestry as just something that I wanted to do sort of as a hobby. I wanted to learn how to do it and weave big pieces to go on the wall. And in New Mexico, they use a lot of big looms. They use the Rio Grande weavers use a walking floor loom, which was my first experience with tap, a tapestry loom. So they have it's a counterbalance two shaft loom that you stand on the treadles to shift the shed. And so early, I mean, right from the get go, I was using floor looms, and I had had floor looms to do other fabric practices. In New Mexico, it's really common to weave tapestry on some kind of a bigger floor loom. So I, um, my grandparents were weavers. My grandmother wove some tapestry and my grandfather wove rugs on a Collingwood or the Harrisville Designs rug loom, which Peter Collingwood helped them design. And then Jason Collingwood wove on at many demos in the United States. And so I got my grandfather's Harrisville rug loom when he moved to assisted living and couldn't bring it with them. And it's my favorite tapestry loom ever because it has fantastic tension. So tapestry can be woven on a loom like that, that has a horizontal um, orientation for the warp, or there are, you'll see pictures of many tapestry looms where the warp is upright, um, big floor looms, but there's two big beams and the warp runs from bottom to top. And the weaver sort of facing like a wall of tapestry. And so I wove on, I actually have one of those also. And so I, I weave on both of those looms. And then when I started teaching, which is something that I love very much, I started using smaller looms because it, they're so much more accessible. It's really hard to convince someone to put a Harrisville rug loom in their house because it's probably going to replace their couch. So that's sort of how I got to using I don't even know how many looms I have now, but many, many small looms in addition to those bigger ones. Well, when you go from talking about, you know, even a table loom, that's that's a huge difference. I mean, you could you could fit probably a hundred small looms in the space that you could fit one of these multi-shaft looms. Definitely, most definitely. Um, and actually, I have a lot of students who end up sort of collecting looms in the way I do, because when you have smaller ones, you know, why not have five of them instead of just one? And one of the things I 
love to see is when you, you know, go out on hikes or, or go on uh, an artist retreat, you take a, a little loom with you and use it as kind of a sketch pad. I do. That's been something that has been really kind of magical for me because for a long time, I, you know, I learned tapestry weaving largely in an apprenticeship where it was very serious and I was working hard every day on big looms. And then sort of things shifted and I became a teacher and realized that people love the smaller things. But honestly, the small loom sketch, I call it sketch tapestry, started with an artist residency I had at Petrified Forest National Park in 2016. It was almost exactly four years ago now. And um, it was a place where I was driving there, but obviously can't bring a big floor loom along with me. And I, I'm a big hiker and I knew I was going to spend the month doing a lot of hiking and it's beautiful. It was November, but it's beautiful in Arizona that time of year. And so I went out every day. This was just what I decided I was going to do was bring a small loom with me as I was hiking and do some weaving. And it turned out to be a practice that really felt um, focusing in a way. It just, it allowed me to play, I guess, and help me focus on what I was looking at that day. And that just like you would use a sketch, a sketch pad to mark ideas. So every day I wove a tiny tapestry from my time at the park. And then it was just such a great idea for me to work out um, weaving ideas in a sort of non, a way that didn't have a lot of pressure on me. And so I kept doing that. And now I take the loom when I go hiking and um, I teach a class called Weaving Tapestry on Little Looms, which came out of that idea of weaving just small things quickly on small looms. Doesn't take much yarn. Tiny loom doesn't cost a whole lot. It's really a fun practice. And some of the projects that you do for commissions, I think, take, you know, certainly months and months and they're, you know, many square yards large. So to go from something that's essentially, you know, the size of a largish postage stamp to something that's bigger than a bed, I guess. I'm, I'm trying to think of something in the right scale. Yes. Um, so it's funny. I, I don't know that. I think both practices have informed each other in a, in a lot of ways. My bigger tapestries are, I'd say the average size is, you know, like 45 inches square. Some of them get, you know, there's one that's like 72 inches long, but um, they're in sort of a, you know, living room wall sized <laughs> um, size range. And yes, the little things are anywhere between like two inches square to maybe five inches square at the largest. And I think that the, um, the way my brain works is different in the two things. And, and definitely the way that tapestry is able to be approached with those two scales, which are so different is, is a different thing because, you know, when you're making an image, if you only have, say you only have 24 warps and you want to, you know, weave a picture of a bicycle or something, you're not going to be very successful because there's just not enough warps in there to get the details that you want. So it's a process of simplifying for the small things, but I find that that's helpful for the large things because even though now I might have uh, 600 warps or something, I still don't necessarily want to weave the bicycle so that it looks like a real bicycle. I don't know why I chose the bicycle as an example, because I don't really weave realistic things. But um, it's it's a thing of training your brain to to weave it, to work in the language of tapestry, I guess. And I feel that um, it stretches me a lot to weave at both, both different 
both sizes. What I don't do much is stuff right in the middle. (laughs) I don't really have tapestries that are like two feet square. I'm either tiny or big. I noticed about the way that you're weaving tapestry that's a little bit different from what a lot of, I guess I'll say cloth weavers do, is that you have a lot closer, more sort of more personal relationship with some of your yarn. You you spin yarn. I, I'm guessing you probably don't spin all the yarn for the 45 by 45 pieces, but you do you do spin yarn. But and, and you're also a an active dyer. Yes, I. Um, gosh, materials are such a big thing in my head. And when I started weaving tapestry, it was not something I really wasn't really on my radar. I just used the yarn I was taught to use. And I just did, you know, you do this and you make a tapestry and this is the set that you use and stuff. And so I blame Maggie Casey completely for my yarn experimentation. She is a master spinner who um, owns a yarn shop uh, in Boulder, which is now gone online, I think. But um, you all maybe have heard of Maggie, especially if you read spinoff. She taught me to spin and I started just as a lark. I just needed to do something else with my hands that wasn't weaving. And so I took some of her beginning classes. I live close enough to Boulder that I could go down and um, take classes with her in person. And I suddenly was so fascinated with how to make fiber. So spinning is the best way to learn about yarn. I'm convinced. Um, just trying, Maggie made us spin all kinds of things. She made us spin linen, which wasn't too bad. And then she made us spin cotton and I thought I was going to kill her. So <laughs> I'm going to stick with wool, which is what I use for my tapestries. But definitely the spinning teaches you about, you know, the, the way you want the yarn to act so that it reflects light and looks good in a tapestry. Cause we pack that weft in a lot. And so you want of, you know, a fleece and a yarn that's going to still reflect some light when it's all compressed. And then, of course, I learned to dye early. I actually had a class in synthetic dyeing in college, and it was amazing. Probably one of the most useful things I ever learned in college <laughs> was, was dyeing. Because, boy, if you're a tapestry weaver and you try to buy exactly the color you want, sometimes it's just not available. And sometimes the limitations are fine. You learn to use something else or to mix colors and to make what you want. But it's kind of fun to be able to go to the dye studio and mix up just about any color. So I do dye all my all my yarn. I do purchase a base yarn. I do not spin for the large tapestries. Any hand spun tapestry you've seen me weave I is probably pretty small. I loved seeing though, some of the things that you've spun on a tiny, tiny little Turkish spindle out in the, you know, you're out there, never mind your, you know, flint and, and match, you know, matches and, and kindling. You're out there with, you know, with a tiny, tiny spindle and a little bit of wool and a very simple loom. Yeah, that's been a really fun thing for me is to bring these smaller tools along when I, I go backpacking a lot, but I also take them just hiking around here in the mountains of Colorado. And, um, I've gone on trips where I've taken a flit carter and fleece that I've dyed and I've spun. So just flit carded it instead of making, I'm not going to bring cards on the trail. They're too heavy, but a little flit carter you could bring. And I've spun the colors that I want and then woven them just like in really simple patterns. And it's really fun to get back from a trip and see that, you know, oh, I was, you know, looking at this view or something as I was choosing these colors and putting them into 
a weaving. Um, I think it helps you. It helps me remember places I've been in a more something hands-on and sensual about it. The sense of touch and sight and all of that is connected. So um, yeah, it's fun to do that. I was just, I, f- I forget that we're doing a podcast. I was going to show you my spindle, <laughs> but. <laughs> so you mentioned taking a synthetic dyeing class in college, but that's not what you studied, right? You came to, to tapestry weaving, you know, later on as an adult. Yes. So I, um, always had an interest in making things and had in high school, I just had, was one of those kids that was like, gosh, everything is kind of interesting. And I have lots of interest. I don't know what I want to do. And my parents were in the medical field. And my mother came up with, oh, occupational therapy, that would be a great profession for you. Because it has something to do with making um, and crafts and using your hands, at least traditionally. So I decided I was going to be an OT. And I was going to use weaving in my practice when I was working with clients and, and stuff. And So I got an undergraduate degree to get the prerequisites. And then I did the graduate program in occupational therapy. And about the time I got to that program, which I got my degree from Colorado State University, they had just sold all of, I remember one of the looms in the lab there and they had just sold it and it went away. So it was the end of the era of weaving in occupational therapy. But that's originally how I got interested in that profession. Later, the color um, dye class that I took was when I went back for my associate's degree um, at a community college in a fibers course. Mm -hmm. So that's where I took the dye class. But um, yeah, my professional training was in occupational therapy. And then I was actually an OT for 17 years until about almost seven years ago. Now I transitioned to teaching tapestry full time. So Occupational therapy actually started in the early 1900s, around 1910, I think, right around as the, you know, World War One was sort of ramping up. And there was a profession called rehabilitation aid. So they were having all of these young men mostly come back from World War One with mental and or physical issues. And there were these women who were not nurses, most of them were women. They were not nurses, but they were trained to help these GIs coming home sort of get back in touch with their regular life and maybe rehab some physical injuries also. And those rehabilitation aides actually became occupational therapists. So at the beginning, they were just lightly trained people who came in with, there's pictures of looms in old hospitals and they um, taught crafts and were using that as a largely as a mental health thing to try to get these GIs who had seen such horrific things back into the world at home. Um, There's a woman named Mary Miggs Atwater, who is one of the matriarchs of weaving in the United States. And she was one of the very first rehabilitation aides turned occupational therapist in the United States. And she was born in 1878. And she died in 1956. So she was right in that World War One thing. And then she eventually left occupational therapy to bring up her kids. So her husband died young. Anyway, she had a bunch of kids. She had to take care of them. And she left OT and became a master weaver. And she started the Shuttlecraft Guild, which many of you have probably heard of, and wrote a really popular American hand weaving book 
So her shuttlecraft guild also had a home study course. And I feel like this is how it comes full circle for me is that Mary Miggs Atwater started as an OT and I was also an OT. And then she eventually ended up with this home study course where she was mailing materials to people to do exercises at home and then they would mail them back to her. And so now that I teach online, I feel like I'm followed in Mary's footsteps. I just love that. And so you've actually been teaching online for quite a while, right? I mean, you've had courses available for more than the last year, certainly. Yes, I started. I know exactly when I started because it's when we moved to Fort Collins. It was 2014. I quit my my last OT job, which was a profession that I loved. It it was a lot of one-on-one and a lot of teaching, actually, which I is something that I really love a lot. But I did not like my last boss and it was it was a tough job. And so I left, I just quit that job and I had the first online class that I wanted to do, um, almost ready to go. And so I quit the job. We moved to Fort Collins and I um, rolled out that class. And the first, I was looking for a new job at that time, another, another OT job. It never occurred to me that I could make a living teaching online tapestry. Weave. I mean, tapestry weaving of all things. So um, that first class went quite well. And so I never went back to OT. I just kept saying, well, we'll see if the next month goes okay. And then I'll get an OT job. And I never had to go back. So it's been, it'll be seven years in, I think, April since I started teaching online. And I've got, um, I started with a big beginning class and I have another class on little looms and I've added a few more classes since then. So now I'm teaching design, tapestry design online, and um, there's always more information <laughs> to put out there. Who who knew that you, that by creating this setup where you were, you know, having relationships with people and artists through the computer, that you were preparing perfectly for 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 this past year? It's I cannot tell you the amount of gratitude I have for the serendipity of that. I. I thought I was doing a really weird thing by teaching tapestry weaving online. And it turned out that the timing was perfect because, of course, now we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And I was already set up. There's set up to teach um, just to continue what I'm doing. And so many of my colleagues who mostly teach in in in-person workshops have really struggled with how to make an income at all. And so I'm, I'm super grateful that I had a foot in the door and I've help to many of them figure out how they are going to teach on Zoom or whatever, how how they're going to keep classes going until they can teach in person. I do miss, I teach retreats and workshops all over the country every year. And I really miss that in-person connection. It's, it's different teaching something online. And um, sometimes I think you need that someone standing next to you and workshopping stuff for lack of a better word. Yeah, there's a little magic that that is missing. It's it's a good stand in. And it's also a great way to teach something over a long period of time, something as complicated as tapestry. It's kind of nice to have someone to check in with as you're going along. But um, yeah, I miss the workshops. So do you typically have a big project on the loom at the same time that you're working on you know, various things from classes to postage stamps, size tapestries to working on your book? I've been thinking about this lately, about the nature of my own personal creativity. And um, a lot of it is around actually making the classes. This whole 
teaching the structure in my brain about how to best teach people something that I really love a lot. Then the other areas are sort of weaving for the, you know, you weave to the, to the students. So there, I'm always doing samples of things that I want to teach. And often I'm making videos of those samples and stuff. But yes, the third thing is the Great Big Loom, which right now does not have a tapestry on it. Um, It's been more than a year since I had a big tapestry in process. So um, it is one of those things that comes in cycles. I was writing a book. And so the focus on the big tapestry didn't happen. But soon there will be there is a design. I've dyed most of the yarn. It's just that getting it getting the courage to start something. This will be a six foot square tapestry. So it actually takes a little bit of, takes a little, even still, it takes a little courage to jump in because you think, well, what if I weave two feet of this thing and I hate it? And that's just the nature of making art. That's true. So I think one time I was working with, uh, it might've actually been Maggie Casey on, on her book, Start Spinning. Um, and I told her that I I thought that writing a book would change the way she teaches. What was the experience of writing a book like for you? Gosh, that is such a great question. Um, this book, it, it, the experience was very different from what I thought it would be. So I went into it thinking, and the process has been more than more than three years now, I think maybe almost four years since we started talking about doing the book and stuff. Um, I went into it thinking, I teach online. I know what I'm doing. All I have to do is take all those handouts I've made and plop them in a Word document. And I'm going to have a book. It's going to be easy. And that is not the case at all. Because like, you know, you've worked on with a lot of authors on many different books about hands-on techniques. And it just doesn't translate. The video teaching doesn't translate exactly to how you write a book. So I um, realized that about it, I don't know, six or eight months into writing it, I realized, oh, yeah, this isn't quite working the way I thought it was going to. So um, I had to go back and really think about how do I experience books that are how-to books and how do people today really learn the best and stuff about you know, we're so used to our phones and little bits of information and having images for everything that I steered clear of a more text-based book and went with a lot of shorter sentences and a lot of images to demonstrate um, the techniques. And I, f- I feel like that was pretty successful. Um, but it took me a while of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting uh, to get there. The book is over 300 pages and there are, I don't know how many in the end, how many photos there are, but we had like 500 photos planned. So it's image, pretty image heavy. And you were spending, you know, it wasn't just, oh, I'm going to go spend a day in the photo studio, spend the night, do the next day and go home. You had multiple trips to the photo studio for this book. This book was um, published by Story publishing who um, does a lot of sort of DIY how to craft book kind of things. And they are experts, thank God, (laughs) at doing the photo shoots. Um, There's no way I could have managed. I know some publishers have authors actually do their own photos and there's no way I could have managed that. So I went out to story a couple times. The we did the photo shoot basically in one two week stint. I think it was 11 days of 
shooting. And it's just because there were so many how-to photos. So there would be these sequences of photos and we'd take one and maybe two, and then the editor and I would review it and make sure it matched the text. And, you know, everything from, oh, there's a little piece of fuzz on the, on the image to, oh, no, you wrote it this way and we shot it that way. So we'd have to redo it. And in the end, it took um, 11 days. And there were still a bunch of things I had to go back home and weave and send to them to photograph. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a really big project. I've never been so tired. It was, it was exhausting. But the team was great. And the photographer was amazing. So it turned out well. It makes me think, though, when I've worked with people, you know, who teach a subject and then they do a video on it, I have to explain that when you're there in person, there's a level of trust that, you know, that the students will come along with you. And that's totally different with a book as well, that you need to set yourself up to to kind of bring them along with you. That's I love that. That's a great imagery. I've never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right that the book and the online teachings like that too, video teaching is when you're in person, you feel like you have that buy-in or you don't, but you know if they're going to follow you or not. And um, it, you never know when you're teaching with a book or video. So I think with the book, there was a really an underlying wish for that sort of come with me feeling. So I try to be really f- friendly and, um, encourage experimentation and play because tapestry can be a very, people see it, can see it as a very sort of rule bound, important in air quotes, um, sort of discipline, which I think is a little bit ridiculous, maybe. I think it's a wonderful interlacement. It's a fiber structure or a weaving structure that's been used for uh, 10,000 years, maybe at least 3000 years that we have evidence of all over the world in all different cultures. And I feel like we as, you know, modern humans can use that structure to express whatever we want to. So go out and have fun and play with it. That is, you know, really sort of welcoming. And one of the things I, I think about tapestry is that there's, there's a, you can put something on a loom and, and make something that is a air quotes tapestry. But there's this wide range. Yeah. Um, gosh, the, yeah, the options. And that I think is a positive thing. For some people, it's, they struggle with it. But the options available just with this very simple weave structure are pretty huge. And so there are, it's a challenge for teaching to know, you know, how do you start someone so that they feel successful with, you know, something that's not too hard, but also give them the vision of, you could do this one day in tapestry once you learn all of this stuff. So, you know, those old medieval tapestries from Europe that are massively huge and very fine thread counts to stuff that's like, you know, more three-dimensional or big, fat, chunky yarns or all of that can fall into the range of tapestry. And finding, finding where your interest lies is an important piece, I think, of diving into a medium like this. And it's not that easy because there's a lot of options, but you'll never figure it out unless you dive in and experiment and play with it. So that's what I hope that my message will be to some people anyway. So... In the last, you know, maybe five well, five to 10 years, there are a lot of people who have been coming into tapestry who are really interested in that sort of 
chunky yarn, three-dimensional, you know, a lot of almost called wall art. And so sometimes when you look up tapestry, there's, you know, you might find something that is, you know, the gobelin or something like that, or you might find, you know, roving on a on a circle loom. And so as somebody whose career in tapestry has been, you know, much longer than that, I'm I'm curious how that affects who comes to your classes, if it does. That's a great question. I really, there was a while that I really struggled with this thing. And I would call the sort of weaving on, you know, frames that are not tensioned with a lot of roving and riot knots and stuff. I would call it wall hanging weaving. Um, I see it a lot on Instagram and some of them are beautiful and, you know, vintage yarns and a lot of pastels and stuff like that. Um, in my head, I don't have that categorized the same way as tapestry, partly because not the some of the weave structures are sort of non-traditional. But I think over time, I just felt like I could let it go. Like, it doesn't matter how we categorize it, really. It's fiber art. It's important that we're making things and that we're expressing the things that we want to express. And I think people get really caught up with labeling things in the correct way and oh you're not following the you know all the rules passed down from France and um I'm not following all the rules passed down from France because I learned in New Mexico and we didn't have all those rules and so maybe that's part of why I'm a little more open to yeah if you want to learn to do rhinoats and fringe on the edge of your tapestry that you're doing in my class that's fine um play with it and see what you think so I feel like those kinds of weavers are making very valid statements and they enjoy doing it. And clearly they can crank out a lot of those and uh, they're even selling them and people must enjoy them in their homes. And so I think it's all about making. But you're right that at the end of the day, there is a confusion when you're trying to figure out what is tapestry you have to dig a little bit deeper to find the sort of American Tapestry Alliance kind of tapestry, just meaning there's still a wide variety of what people there create, but it's more based in European traditional tapestry than um, this other thing, which sort of grew out of, I, I'm not sure what, I think a group of people got really interested in Sheila Hicks work, who also an amazing artist still alive and practicing. Um, but sort of out of the 70s. And we've come back to that. It does kind of remind me in a way of um, similar conversations that we've had in spinning, where we have very traditional smooth yarns and, you know, novelty yarns, art yarns, whatever, whatever we want to call them, uh, designer yarns. And even in stitching in a way where the sort of restrained, you know, formal stitching um, and very expressive sort of wild stitching can or even machine stitching can all sort of you know sit shoulder to shoulder in in a in a way that hopefully there's room for all of us yeah i like that um you use the word formal and i feel like that was a good descriptor of what we think of tapestry a lot it's sort of this formal practice that we're doing and i'm trying to push it a little um to make it more accessible yeah i hope that the we can stand shoulder to shoulder and um accept people who are trying different things and it's all fine and we should all learn from each other. Well, I can't wait to pick up your book and uh, pull one of the various looms that I'm collecting behind me and uh, get some thread and, and start weaving some tapestry myself. 
Thanks so much, Rebecca. You're so welcome. Thanks for a great talk. And um, thanks for looking at my new book. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.